Greg Rubel of Living Streams Community Church in McCordsville, Indiana. We want to thank you for your interest in God's Word and this message. We pray that God puts it into your heart. Good morning. Let's turn to Mark chapter 10 together. Uh, there's three things that you should have with you, hopefully. It's your bulletin that you were given. It's going to have today's outline on there. highly encourage you to have that with you because what we're going to learn today, you're going to want to take home. And you're going to want to review, and I'm going to give you a chance because there's extra scripture and stuff that I put in there for you to study and go through and gather more than what I can give you today. Uh, and then second, of course, the Bible. Make sure you pull out the Bible, make sure you get it on your lap, make sure you're reading it. One thing you want to realize is what I'm going to comment on, what I'm going to talk on, what, what I say is not as important as what you read today. It says that the Word of God is living and active. The Word of God is what transforms and what renews our minds. As Pastor Greg says, life is messy, life is hard, but God gives us a spiritual bath and he cleans us up. And he sets us on a new path. And so it's as we read the word of God together, that's what renews and transforms your mind and changes your heart. It's not my commentary on what we say. So don't pay as much as attention to what I say versus when we read the scripture together. There are Bibles uh, underneath your seats there. I highly encourage you to get it out and read along because it's the reading of the scripture is what changes and transforms our heart. And then the third thing you should have is a pen or a pencil. So that way you can scribe down what we talk about so you can take it along with you because sometimes, come on, be honest. You sit in church and you've got X's in your eyes, right? <laughs> You're just going, when is this guy going to be done? That way, when you're zoning out, you jot it down. And when you're in a better place, better thoughts in your head and you have a better time, you can read the Bible. You can read the study again. Amen? Amen? Have it with you all the time. It can highly encourage you. Today we're going to talk about live life with a tender heart. See, Scripture says that all of us are lost and forgotten. We're, we're not just sick, but we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And the Bible describes man's heart as like a stone or a rock. And the answer is a new heart, not new behavior, not new traditions, not new ways, not new clothes, not new deodorant, not new things that make you present yourself better, but a new heart. And Jesus often talks and teaches that life is lived inside out. But according to the, according to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I had the Pharisees and Sadducees mixed up. He, they live according to the outward traditions, and inwardly their heart 
are dead men's bones or whitewashed tombstones. Their life is just life and change and growth on the outside, but death on the inside. And so this is as we go through today, we're going to look at how to have a tender heart, how to respond to your kids, how to respond to your wife, how to respond to your boss, how to initiate tenderness and kindness and forgiveness according to Ephesians 4.32. Well, the contrast to a tender heart, can anybody tell me? A hard heart. Now, all of you, you, you know what a hard heart's like, right? Do you? Yeah. You see it from your family members. You see it from your boss. You see it around the world. You see it on TV. But rarely do you see and experience a tender heart. And when you come across a tender heart, doesn't it impact your day? Your heart and your life? It does. So let's go ahead and begin in verse 1 of chapter 10 of the Gospel of Mark. Now, I am a little ambitious. We're going to cover 50 verses today. Uh, you may think, uh, no, I already have X's in my eyes. <laughs> Not 50 verses. It's going to be easy. Watch. Verse 1. Then he arose from there, and he came to a region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. Oh, and by the way, I'm reading from the New King James, okay? And I won't have scripture up on the screen. I apologize. Uh, and the multitudes gathered together and said, as he was accustomed, he taught them again. See, he teaches the multitude, but he disciples the 12. He disciples the 70. See, there's roughly 5,000 to 6,000 multitudes numbered in Scripture. There's the 70 disciples, and then there's the 12 apostles. And all of those he interacts with in different ways. And so he's teaching the multitudes. And the Pharisees came to him and asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Uh, what's their motive? Can anybody point it out in verse 2? What's their motive? To make him look stupid, to make him look dumb, to pull the rug out from underneath of him and trap him and disqualify him. Are they sincere learners? Are they genuine believers? No, they're skeptics and critics. And that's one thing you want to learn as you go through life. Is this person who's asking me questions or interacting with me, are they sincere or are they just really wanting to make Christianity and me look bad. And so these men are there to test him and they say, does it fulfill the law? Does it complement the law? Is it law? Are you being a law obedient, a law obedient citizen if you divorce your wife? And this is what he says in verse three. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? So he takes you back to the Ten Commandments in commandment seven. And, he, and they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and, he, and dismiss her. You can go to Deuteronomy 24 to learn a little bit more about that. And Jesus answered and said to them, because of what? The hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. This concession was only given because of man's hard heart. It doesn't fulfill the law to divorce. It actually breaks the law of God. What's the law of God? Well, if you read the Old Testament, there's 613 moral commands in Scripture that the Jews were expected to live up to. See, the 613 moral commands were a commentary or an, ex, an expansion on the Ten Commandments. 
And when you break up the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are in two different parts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, commandment one through four. And then love your neighbor as yourself, five through ten. Your relationship horizontally, I almost got it backwards, and then your relationship vertically. What, what does that make? It's interesting, huh? What does it make? The cross. You live in harmony with people and you live in harmony with God. See, here they thought obeying the law was a way to make them righteous. Was a way that they would get to heaven. But we'll learn about that in a little bit. But he says, Jesus says, as smart and wise as he is in the scriptures, he goes all the way back to Genesis. In ours, it's chapter 1, verse 27, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife. And then verse 8 is Genesis 2:24, And the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer one, but two flesh. Um, typically, one plus one equals what? But in marriage, one plus one equals one. See, he created two to be what? One. So he says there's a dilemma. When divorce comes along, the earthly certificate may say they're separated, but the eternal bonds that are there with God, they're still one flesh. Look what he continues to say. In the house, his disciples also asked him again. Now look at Where is Jesus with the disciples? In a house. In an intimate, comfortable, controlled setting. But there was the teaching of the multitudes. The crowds. The big crowds of people. It's like Greg talks about. There's a a small group study here on Wednesday. That's that small, intimate group. That you get to connect with the pastor. Close and intimate. Instead of, hey, Pastor Greg, good to see you. And that's, that's about all we do. You know, we're like, hey, yeah, it was nice to see you. But here, Jesus is taking them intimately into a house to disciple and mentor and ask their questions. And he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Why does this adultery still happen in divorce and remarriage? Because the two have become one flesh. Even though the certificate on earth has been issued, even though Moses allowed it on earth, it is still bound in heaven. So then we have the dilemma is even worse. The problem is not getting better. The problem is actually growing worse. So what do we all need in marriage? Forgiveness, grace, and what? A tender heart. See, tender hearts cultivate... God's work in marriage. But a hard heart hinders your marriage. Um, Men and women in here that are married, have you experienced that hardness of heart? It grows and it grows and it festers and it festers. And you take two hearts and you put them together, what happens? (sighs) Crashing, crumbling, dust, mess, problem. But two tender hearts, they're in oneness together. They're in harmony together. They're in submission. They're in that relationship with God. Um, you take, take marriage as like a triangle. You've got the horizontal part, remember? Love the Lord your God, and then love your neighbor as yourself. So you've got the relationship between a man and woman, but then you've got the relationship with God. 
So then marriage is like a triangle. My sons and I, we were watching uh, Lost and the Abandoned. It's uh, buildings on in stuff in history and time. That why have they been abandoned? Why aren't they Why aren't they using them anymore? And there was this train bridge over a river, and they said triangles are the strongest way to structure and lightest way to build things in triangles. And so a triangle, you got God up here as the head of the marriage, and then you've got two tender people. And as you go close, clo- grow closer to God, what happens to each other? You grow closer to each other. And so God is the key to us growing close together in our marriage. Um, I, as, when I do premarital counseling, um, you know, you know the flutters at that time. Maybe a lot of you forgot about that time. You know, she, she's like, you know, but he's just the dreamiest. And, and then so you start going through weeks and talking with them. And then you discover their clashes. You discover um, their sins. You discover their, their issues, their dislikes with each other. And they start to come out. And she, and she goes, but, you know, my love will change him over time. He'll get better as he gets older. I'll dress him up and make him civilized and think, you know, it just, it'll be perfect. (laughs) And I tell him, don't go into marriage expecting to change your spouse. Go into marriage expecting to be gracious. Don't go into marriage thinking your spouse will be perfect. Go into marriage expecting to be a gracious person. Because who are you marrying? Another sinner. Another person saved by God's grace. Um, I also talk about you take two selfish, immature people, and what's the result going to be? Immaturity. And And he or she says, well, I'm mature, and I'll help him or her mature. Okay, Let's take an immature person and a mature person. What's the result going to be? Typically, the immaturity is going to outweigh the maturity, and you're going to have an immature relationship still. So then if you have a mature person and a mature person, what do you get? A mature relationship. And so often, the individual needs to mature and grow before there is that oneness of flesh. Another thing that I tell them is don't expect your spouse to get better as they get older. You know, they, there's that little issue that they have with the person that they're um, engaged to. And, well, I'll overlook it. Love is so strong that love just kind of covers and buries that you know sin or that issue. It'll go away. It's okay. And then you should expect that it gets worse. That's what you should go into marriage expecting, is that the problem actually gets worse. So if the problem gets worse, are you still going to be committed and still going to love? That's the question. And if we go into a marriage expecting those things, then we know what's going to come our way. You know, she goes, he sits there all the time and he just loves to listen to my words. And he hangs on every single word. And I just love that he listens to me. He just has a wonderful listening ear. And then go by 35 years later and you're doing premarital counseling with a couple that's been married for 35 years and their kids are in college. And she goes, I just don't know why he won't talk. He just doesn't ever talk. I can't get anything out of him. And I'm always the one saying everything. 
Do you see? The very thing we thought we fell in love with later becomes the problem that I'm devastated by. So who is it that changed? Him or her? See, the issue is, the goal is, the point is, live life with a tender heart. And it cultivates God's work in your messy marriage, in your problems, in your struggles, and in your successes. Let's move on into chapter, or I'm sorry, verse 13. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples, ah, here comes the wonderful mature disciples, rebuked those who brought them. But Jesus, when they saw it, he was greatly displeased and said, let the little children come to me. Now, I'd like you to highlight or underline or pay attention to the word children, because we're going to see it again later. And he says, do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, and he laid his hands on them, and he blessed the children. See, the disciples thought they were an annoyance, a problem. They were in the way. Jesus doesn't have time for children. See, little do they know the disciples are struggling with a hard heart. And they don't realize it. And the reason why the disciples are struggling with a hard heart is because the culture in Israel at this time is full of a hard heart. And the religious leaders of the nation of Israel are full of a hard heart too because they lord over the people and the people are a means to their gains. And so they have learned to be hard because culture makes it hard. Have you ever started something and you're tender and it's sweet and it's easy? Marriage. Have you ever started something and it's you're tender and sweet and it's easy? Raising children. Have you ever started a new job with a tender and easy wonderful heart and the longer you're there the harder your heart becomes because the culture around you the boss dominates you there's threatened there's manipulation and you're trying to shuck and jive and stay alive in the middle of everything and you slowly turn and become hard too as well see this world has an effect on us and wants to push us towards being hard because really hard hearts are the only way you're going to survive at times to dominate and lord over but we're going to see that Jesus has a new way, a new answer for that. So tender hearts cultivate God's word in raising children. But we all know that hard hearts hinder God's work in raising children. I don't know about you, but it's hard raising children. <laughs> I'm a single only child. My mom was 15 when she gave birth to me, not conceived me when she gave birth to me. I'm 45. I still have never met my father in my entire life, uh, raised by just my mother. And I don't know what siblings are like. I don't know what large crowds are like. I don't know what social atmospheres are like because I grew up by myself being a latchkey kid. When I was in elementary school, in second grade, third grade, I was walking home by myself um, backwards, upside down, in the snow, you know, all that. I was walking home alone and being home by myself. Um, by the time I was 10, I was already doing dishes, cooking dinner. My mom would come home. The house would be ready. I would be fully doing everything that needed to be done at home. And that was my life, at home alone in the house. 
and a house that's full and crowded and loud and noisy and pushy and bully and stompy and hitty and grunt. It's hard for me every single day. And it wants to cultivate a hard heart in me every single day. And I am fighting it every day because my natural inclination is not a tender heart. It's a hard heart. Because from the time I've been conceived, from the time I was born, from the time life was hard and you had to have a hard heart to survive. You have to have a hard heart to survive not having a dad, not having your mom around, all those things, being beat up at the bus stop, all, all the stuff that goes on. You have to have a hard heart. When you get put in jail and you're in jail, you got to have a hard heart because you're not going to survive jail with a tender heart. And so my inclination is to lean and push that way and live life naturally that way. But God says there's a new way. A tender heart. And we'll discover more as we go through. Let's look at verse 17. For point number three. Now, he was going out on the road. And and there was one who came running and knelt before him. And asked him, good teacher. Look, he's already... Given the titles, behaving, the behavior of kneeling, he's running, he looks ambitious. He looks like a person that, man, I want to really get to know this guy. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He's focused on the eternal. He has a desire for the eternal. He realizes and believes there is an afterlife. Wow, this is an impressive young man. I want to get to know him. So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good. No, not one. See, Paul keys in on this in Romans 3.23. And he says, there is no one good. No, not one. All have sinned and all have fallen short according to the glory of God. See, there are people banking on, my good works will get me into heaven. They don't believe in God, but they say God is kind enough that he'll let me in even though I fall short. Yes, God is good, but there is only one access in one way. And it's his goodness that keeps you out of heaven. See, you say how horrible it is that people would go to hell for eternity. If a man raped and murdered and killed your little girl and the judge says, I'm a good judge and I'm a kind judge, therefore I render him free, what would that courthouse do? It would erupt in unjust behavior and it would be livid. And that dad would be so angry and he would demand that judge be taken out and a new judge be replaced. See, if it happens here on earth, and that is the way we work in earth, should it still not yet be that way in heaven? Yes, it should. He says, you know the commandments. Now, this is commandments one through five that Jesus recites, I'm sorry, four through ten that he recites to him. The second part of the Ten Commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said, Teacher, I have kept all these things. He's, by fulfilling the commands, he's puffed up. He feels good. He feels strong. Now, the problem this young man has is he sees the law of God as a, as a way of righteousness and a way of attaining entrance into eternity. But Paul says that the law is a tutor to show us that we, in our depravity, that we need God, that we need forgiveness, that we need to be broken and humble, desperate before God, pleading for his mercy. But see, this young man sees the law of God as steps and as a way to heaven. And Paul debunks this and says it is not so. See, as I mentioned, there's 613 moral commands in the scripture. And you've got the Ten Commandments that those are an expansion on the Ten. But then you break up the Ten, first four, love, second six, love. And all 613, they're fulfilled by love. When you go to the book of Romans, Paul says that love fulfills the law. Now, what did God so do in John 3.16? He so loved the world. And Jesus came and loved the world by dying and giving his life for the world. And he fulfilled all 613 moral commands, all 10 commandments that none of us could ever fulfill, none of us could ever do. And he did it. And we vicariously, through Jesus Christ, have done it. And so when we live a loving life, we fulfill the law of God every single day. And here this young man, he thinks that fulfilling the law is by doing. But I want to um, show you briefly, if I can remember. Oh, I thought, it, Okay, let's turn in your Bible to John 6. John 6 for a moment. I love to hear the sound of the pages fluttering in the church. Verse 28 of John chapter 6. And they said to him, what shall we do? I'm sorry, what shall we do that we may do the works of God? Here you have the type A personality men who they go through a checklist and they go, I've done all these. I've checked them all off. Yes, I'm successful. That's how work goes, right? Your boss says, do all these things. You check them all off and he says, you're successful. But that's not the way the kingdom of God works. Look at verse 29. And Jesus said to them, this is the work of God. What's the work of God? That you believe. See, the whole culture of Israel has it completely wrong. They're about traditions, religion, laws, abiding, checking every little mark, every little yacht, every little dot, T, cross it. They're, they're all about all of that instead of believing. But there's no believing. And Jesus says, the way you do the works of God is simply by believing. Okay, go back to Mark chapter 10. And then Jesus, look at him, looking at him in verse 21, said to him, One thing you lack, go your way. One thing you lack, go your way, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. See, the problem with this young man 
is that he lacks commandments one through four. Do you notice there was only commandments five through ten? He only had a pious religious relationship in front of people, but he had no belief in God. He has no worship in his life with God, and he doesn't follow God. He follows the traditions of men. And here Jesus is targeting the one problem, the one fault, the one issue that's hooking this man's heart and making it hard from following God is riches. So he goes and he targets the one thing that is hindering this man from following God is his money. See, money will make you hard. Money will make you bitter. To keep all your money and make more money, you got to be hard. You got to be ruthless. You got to be on the top of your game on the stock market. You got to be able to cut corners in every way you can to make more. See, this man is about collecting all the money he can instead of what? Using his money to give away and benefit and bless other people. He says he keeps commandments 5 through 10, but yet his money shows where his belief really is. So here we see a tender heart cultivates God's work in your life. God is trying to cultivate a tender heart in this man to work in his life. But the money is in the way. Look at verse 22. But he was sad at the word and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. See, even though this man had a lot of money, what did he still experience? What's the unique word in that verse? What did he experience that even the poor people experience? Sorrow. No matter how much money you have, you're still going to go through times of sorrow. See, a tender heart cultivates God's work in your life to follow Jesus. And your heart is tender and he has been cultivating his work. And you're tender and more work is cultivated and you're here following Jesus. And as you go out these doors, you live your life in your neighborhood, your workplace, your community, your culture. And he is, you're following him and he's working in and through your life. Verse 23, then Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard, look at the word, there's the second repetition of the word hard, how hard it is for those who have, now I want you to highlight and underline the word have, okay, it's hard for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God, and the disciples were astonished, I love the disciples and their response, this is, this should be us in church when the word of God is being read. We discover new truths and we're just astonished. We're like, yes, that's there. That's been there all this time. I've been wondering how God was going to deal with that particular issue in my life. Amen. You're astonished. Don't ever stop being astonished by God and his work and his ways. At his word, but Jesus answered and said to them, children. Look, at there's the second repetition of children. Remember in verse 14, he's talking about children. And the children are being hindered by the disciples. And what does he call them? Children. He's warning them that just as you kept away, you snooty little men who think you rule and run the world, you keep little children away. But look at children. Money can keep you away 
from me too as well. He's warning them and he's also calling them children to say, you must become like little children to enter the kingdom of God and to believe, have that childlike faith. And then look at verse, he says, children, how hard it is for those who, what? What's the word now? Trust. Highlight and underline the word trust. He first said it's hard for those who have it, but then it's hard for those who trust. If you have it, it's hard to enter the kingdom of God, but if you trust, it's even harder. And look what he's going to, well, look what word picture or parable he's going to give of what makes it hard. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished. Man, look at that. It's just so easy to put a, on them. Saying among themselves, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. See, what's happening here is a man trying to get to heaven through fulfilling the Ten Commandments. It's impossible. A man who trusts in riches and has riches and even gives away his riches and uses it for the poor and he's depending upon himself and he doesn't believe in God. It's impossible to go to heaven and get to heaven. It's more possible for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a man who trusts in riches to get to heaven. Or a man who tries to fulfill the law to get into heaven, the impossible is more impossible than that impossibility. But here, what he's saying, when you depend upon God, and you put your trust in Him, and you're broken and contrite before Him, you're not beating your chest and saying, thank you, I'm not like this woman, or I'm not a woman, or I'm not like this man, I fulfilled all the law, I do everything right, I've got all the T's crossed, I do everything. But when you believe in God, it's possible to do the impossible to get to heaven. Because sometimes it feels impossible to get to heaven, right? But that's why we do the works of God, by believing, instead of trying through our own self-righteousness to get to heaven. See, tender hearts cultivate God's work in your life to enter heaven. And tender hearts cultivate God's work to limitless possibilities. When you have a relationship with God and he's, and your heart is being tender and cultivated in tenderness through the soil and the word of God being planted in the soil, then his work is flowing in and through you. Ephesians says he prepares good works that you should walk in them. He's cultivating that and preparing that and you have a soft and tender heart and he's cultivating more and the fruit is coming and you're growing. The impossible in your life becomes possible. Can I ask you, what's your impossibility today? What's the thing you've been thinking about all week that's impossible? God, it's impossible. Write it on your piece of paper right now. Put it on your notepad right now and say, what's the impossible? For my wife right now, it's probably graduating from nursing school, right? Man, poor woman, she's got X's in her eyes every night up till 4 in the morning, trying to go back to school after, you know, 30 years. What's the impossibility in your life that, you're, that you've just been telling your wife, your family, friends, it's impossible. It's not going to happen. When you believe and you're tender and broken and contrite before him, and it's not about me fulfilling the law, but it's about me, that forgiveness before Christ, believing, thankful, grateful, 
more work is cultivated. And that cycle just continues to grow. And the impossibilities in your life, they become possible. I think of all the impossibilities in my life to get where I am here today. All that I've been through through my life. At 21, I became a Christian finally after going to jail for the second time. Um, I just, the life I have is not the life that I would expect that I would have had before being a believer. And it produces, and it needs to produce gratefulness and gratitude, humility, brokenness, thankfulness before God. Let's finish out our last one. Verse 32. Oh, actually, 28. And then Peter began to say to him, we have left all to follow you. Look, is Peter getting a little insecure? He sees this guy who was told to leave everything. So what does Peter think the answer for him is to get into heaven? Sell everything. But, uh, sorry, that's not the answer, Peter. Peter's problem isn't money, because he already gave it all up, right? So it's Peter's problem. He has a hard heart. You see the way the disciples rebuke the children, right? You see it all through the, they argue and they fight over what with each other? Power and position. So the disciples are full of hard hearts. So Peter thinks the answer for him is getting rid of his money. But it's not about that. The one fix for you is not the one fix for you. The one thing that God says to give up, the one thing is not the same across the board. He knows this all uniquely. And so he says in verse 29, Jesus answered and said, remember as we're reading the scripture, don't get antsy, don't get fussy. Remember, it's the reading of the scripture that transforms and renews our mind. Okay, so take it in and let it soak. So Jesus answered and said, Surely, assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or wife or children for my name's sake in the gospel who will receive a hundredfold. See, Jesus says, I'm going to give back more than you thought you forsook, that you gave up. The fold of what's coming to bless you in the future is greater than the sacrifice that you're making today. Verse 32. And now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. Look at them. There's the word amazed, astonished again. When you're around Jesus, your life is full of what? Amazement. Astonishment. The impossibility becoming possible, and you just stand there. But when you're from afar, or you're in denial, or a rejection, there is none of that amazement. And they all followed, and they were afraid, and they took the twelve aside, and again began to tell them all the things that were happening to him. And behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed and excuse me, and by the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him to the Gentiles." And they will mock him, and they will scourge him, and they will spit on him, and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Here, for the third time, Jesus is trying to reveal the cross, the purpose of why he came. And all of this is prophesied. How many of you would be sane? Now, at the end of this chapter, the end of this chapter, this is his last miracle. And in the next portion, he goes into his Passion Week. And the death and crucifixion of Christ is coming soon. 
but yet he's still focused. He's still tender. He's still meeting the needs of people. He's still teaching the word of God. If you knew you were going to go through all this in a week, what would you be doing right now? You'd just be a basket case. But look at him. He knows and he just prophesied all that's going to happen to him. And he's still focused and he's still tender in everything. See, in point number four is tender hearts cultivate God's work through your life. See, here, how are the disciples walking? Did anybody catch the word that describes the disposition of the disciples? There's the word afraid. See, tender hearts cultivate God's word through your life to walk in boldness. Jesus right now is walking in boldness. And what does he know is coming in a week? The most brutal thing that ever happens that man could ever invent to do to a human being. And he's walking in peace with God. And the disciples have a whole life of being blessed by God ahead of them. And they're afraid and trembling and worriedful and nervous. Which is your disposition in life? See, a hard heart produces and creates fear every day through your life. Anxiety, worry, and stress through all of that. But a tender heart cultivates that peace and that boldness to keep walking through even though it looks like the sky is falling. Verse 35, And James, the son of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we want for us. And look what Jesus does. What do you want me to do for you? Look, he's going to go and die and be sacrificed and killed. And what's he still doing? Helping people. He's still... Now, he just laid out all that's going to happen to him. And who are the disciples thinking of the whole time? Themselves. (laughs) Have you ever poured out your heart to someone and said everything you're going through and the hardness of what you're going through and you've been depressed and crying and... And they're like, oh, okay, bye, have a good day. And you're just standing there left alone going, I was really reaching out and being transparent and hoping I was going to maybe get some prayer. And, but the people, so when you're honest and you pour out your heart, people are just kind of like, uh, um, uh, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to respond to sometimes. And it's awkward and they just walk away. And they said to him, grant to us that we may sit on your right hand and on your left in glory. Now, another gospel, Matthew, says it was his mom, their mom, who came and asked this, not just them. So they put their mom up to it. Um, And he says, you can't take the cup and the baptism that I'm baptized with. The cup and the baptism is the suffering and the death that Jesus is going to go through. And these men don't know what they're asking for. And when the ten heard it, they began greatly to be displeased. The ten is the other apostles. The other apostles were mad and jealous that they didn't think of asking that question first. See, so there's jealousy and rivalry going on between the apostles. So we have a tender heart cultivates God's work through your life to simply be a servant. Look how he finishes this out in verse uh, 45, 43 and 45. Um, Or I'm sorry, we'll start in 42. The rulers of the Gentiles, they lorded over, and they exercised greatness with authority. Yet you shall not be so among you, that whoever desires to become great among you shall be a servant. To be a servant, you must have a tender heart. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life for a ransom. See, 
Jesus has a tender heart. And he's cultivating tender hearts. And he says, "When? how do you know if you have a tender heart? You're a servant. You're last. How do you know if you have a hard heart? You lord over. You dominate. You manipulate. You intimidate. And you... Uh, and, and it's, it's a struggle every day, isn't it? Not to be that way. And he's saying, a tender heart will serve... And a hard heart will lord over. Verse 46, we'll finish this last section. And now they came to Jericho as he went out to Jericho. His disciples and the great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat on the road begging. And when he heard it, that Jesus of Nazareth was there, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Um, Did he come saying, I fulfilled all the commandments? What did he ask for? Mercy. Then many warned him to be quiet. Be quiet, you stupid old bum man. Jesus doesn't have any time for you. Get away. It's the twelve again at work with their hard hearts. Then many warned him to be quiet. And look, he cried out all the more and said, Have mercy on me. What is this man full of? A tender heart. Well, the disciples are trying to drive him away and keep him away. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man. You notice they changed their tune real quick as soon as Jesus was like, Hey, stop your knucklehead stuff. Let him through. Let him come to me. Because such is the kingdom of God. So Jesus stood still and commanded them, him to be called. And they called the blind man and saying to him, Be of good cheer. Rise. He is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and he came to Jesus. So Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? There's the repeat of what he said to the two that wanted to sit on the right and the left. And the blind man said, Teacher, that I may receive my sight. And then Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight. And what did he do? Followed Jesus. Did anybody see the word faith in the whole entire chapter? Did anybody see anybody be healed in the whole entire chapter? The one man who was a nobody in culture, who begged for mercy, was the only one that had faith. And just like Pastor Greg started out with this morning, it's about us broken, it's about us admitting our messiness, it's about us staying humble and contrite, and sometimes God takes us and dashes us on the rocks to cultivate that brokenness and humility. See, finally... A tender heart cultivates God's work to help others. The apostles didn't want to help anybody. The two that asked their mom to go to him only wanted to help themselves because they were focused and fixed on themselves. And today, might God just cultivate a little more tenderness in our heart today that we may walk and say, have mercy on me instead of, God, I do everything right. I'm the man. Or I'm the woman. Shall we stand together and shall we close in prayer? Um, if you had an ear to hear today, respond to God as we pray. If your heart was tender enough to receive, Ask God to cultivate it. But there might have been some hard hearts here that just the word of God 
just bounced right off. And you justified the whole entire time. Well, no, I'm this. Well, you don't know my life. Ask God to break through that if you're willing still after this point. Okay, let's pray together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Not like the rich young ruler saying we've fulfilled it all or we've done it all. But we come like the blind beggar begging God saying, Give us spiritual sight today that we may see the impossible become possible, that we may be able to see when the children need to come to you, that we might be able to see when the homeless or the dejected or the broken or the sick or the lame or the blind or the deaf deaf want to come to you, that we're not standing in the way as a stumbling block, keeping people from coming to your kingdom and saying, no, that, that person doesn't deserve heaven. May we today, God, have that broken and contrite heart of blind Bartimaeus that we today could just kneel and beg because we are all just beggars telling other beggars where to get grace. Break through our hard hearts today. May you improve our marriage marriages That the hardness would be driven away and the tenderness would be replaced. May you drive away the hardness in our raising of children and discipling and making disciples with them. And that we would put on tenderness in our dealings with them. And Lord, your work in our lives, may it continue to happen as we submit and yield to you and that that dam would be broken so the work doesn't just happen in us, but your work happens through us. And that we could be a blessing to this world, Lord. We love you. We're grateful for the cross. We're humbled by every day. Your goodness to us despite our lack of faith or our struggle or our disobedience to you. We love you and we cling to the cross today. In Jesus' name, amen.